Hey, Rockheads, if you couldn't make it to London this year for NSBCon, the very first conference all about in-service bus, we got some good news. NSBCon's coming to New York City September 29th and 30th. Two full days of sessions on distributed systems development from top speakers like Udi Dahan, Oranini, Ted Neward, and .NET Rocks is going to be there too. So join Richard and me at NSBCon and take your development skills to a whole new level. Go to nsbconnyc.com and register today. .NET Rocks, episode 1040, with guest Morton Runga. Recorded Tuesday, September 16th, 2014. And we're back. I'm Carl. That's Richard. Howdy, howdy, howdy. And it's .NET Rocks time again. It is. It's my favorite part of the day. <laughs> it's recording these great shows. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, what can I tell you? It's been quiet at the studio lately, but, uh, you know, I'm, I've got some... Got some projects in the works. I'm work. I'm actually working on music to go by. And, I'm glad, uh, yeah, because I'm looking forward to the making of that too. Yep. Uh, Will my my uh, one of my daughter's boyfriends, not one of her boyfriends, but one of my daughters has a boyfriend, Will, and uh, he's helping me film it. And uh, like I said, I started with a, a 60 beats per minute uh, loop, and it's going from there. It's it's all falling together. Awesome. Yeah, fun. Hey, man, what are you doing? I'm, well, this is, a, we're recording this about a week into the future, so who knows? At the moment, I'm just about finished my Exchange 2013 migration, and I'm feeling really good. But a week from now, it may have all exploded and caught fire, and, and then uh, and I'll be on the cloud. But, you know. Yeah. You're not going easy, are you? No, I, I'm i going to go down when on-prem Exchange goes down, yeah. just so I can look those guys in the eye and, and ride with them. Yeah. So I've committed to the gear and the infrastructure, and so I'm migrating my 25 mailboxes across mm-hmm. one more time. But I'm pretty sure this is the last. I went from 2003 to 2007 to 2010, and now 2013. Okay. Well, it's the you should write a, a big blog post about this so we can relive the drama with you. Oh, no, I, 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 <laughs> I probably thought, I kill myself before I got to the end of the blog post. <laughs> it is absolutely the most stressful part of the infrastructure the mail yeah. is a thing man there's yeah. something amazing about mail yeah all right let's roll the music for better know framework all right buddy what do you got well it turns out that uh as the the day we're recording this which is september 16th Microsoft unveiled a new keyboard and mouse that embrace iOS, Android, and Windows devices alike. Really? Yeah. So if you go to tinyurl.com slash msunikeyboard, msunikeyboard. Okay. Uh, this is uh, an article from PC World. It's just one of a million press articles talking about this story. So Microsoft debuted a tablet keyboard in Two Mice Tuesday morning that followed their company's new cross-platform mantra. They're compatible with iOS, Android, and Windows devices. At a time when Microsoft is loudly promoting its services on non-Windows hardware, it's not surprising to see its peripherals business follow suit. The $59.95 Arc Touch Bluetooth mouse 
the $30 wireless mobile mouse, 3500 limited edition, and the universal mobile keyboard don't necessarily need Microsoft products to run. Nice. Only the $60 Xbox One controller for Windows specifically pairs Microsoft's hardware with Windows. So it's kind of neat. It, it, it's designed to hold either the, a tablet or a smartphone, regardless of the operating system. Plug in the keyboard, huh? Yeah. No, that's cool. Well, and especially when you get across to iOS and Android things, it's all going to be Bluetooth. So something tells me they've worked really hard to make a good Bluetooth stack for it. Well, I, I hope so, because that's, you know, Bluetooth sucks, as anybody has ever developed for it knows. Well, and and, and is irregular from device to device. So yep. the fact that it, that they sat down and said, okay, what chipset can we use to work across all the devices and presumably tested it on all those devices? I certainly hope you're right. And but it would put them by themselves. Nobody else is doing this right now. Yeah, that occurred to me too. You know, yeah. why, why haven't we seen more of this? Uh, have they just been paying attention more than any of us? But uh, that's really, really cool. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Nice one, buddy. We'll see what happens. Richard, who's talking to us today? I grabbed a comment off of show 1028, and that's the one we did just recently with Phil Hack talking about open source, because I know we're going to have open source conversations today. Yep. And it feeds back to a conversation we actually had on that show as well. Um, regarding Steve Barnett, who who sent us an email earlier than that, uh, pointing us to a, a YouTube video about a group of folks who really want Microsoft to open source Visual Basic 6. Right. And uh, uh, Steve's response to all of this was, uh, to partly answer the question you posed on the show, the VB6 community is desperate for Microsoft to open source VB6 because they've already stated in no uncertain terms it will not be developing a new version of VB6. Despite a pretty massive number of votes from people asking for VB7, they declined the request in a pretty dismissive way. This led to a call for open source. The reality of the VB6 world is that there is a massive code base that people have to maintain because the costs of rewriting in .NET are prohibitive, especially as you may have put in years of effort to the conversion just to get back to the current status quo. At the end of the process, you may or may not have an equivalent application. Probably you'll end up with something that does most of what the VB6 application did, but not all. So much better if VB6 were open source and someone, no idea who, were to pick it up, fix the bugs, and maintain it for a future release of Windows. Better yet, upgrade it to full 64-bit support. The result, your existing VB6 code that does the job, continues to work so you can invest your time and money in producing more products and new system rather than reinventing the wheel. I think that a lot comes from the fear of applications not working in the brave new Microsoft world. No one trusts that it, quote, just works promise that we all had VB6 applications that just didn't work in Windows 8. There's a great deal of comfort to be had in the idea that source code is out there, someone is interested enough to want to maintain it, and you do not have to waste many man years of effort rewriting what you already have. No one is looking for a VB6 replacement that create web services or store apps. That's unrealistic. C++ has been maintained up through the years, and I have VB and C-sharp code that is called Windows API methods. So we're maintaining these legacy compilers and APIs. Why not VB6? All right. Steve, let's go through this. Where do we start, my yeah. friend? The problem here is this, uh, you know, there's a wish list there. What you read, you don't actually want VB6 open source. You want it to live. Well, you, you want to be able to run those apps, right? I mean, they should... You should probably think about uh, virtualization rather than um, continuing to move the language forward. Yeah. Well, the problem is if it's a client app, then you're talking about running a VM of XP to keep a VB6 app alive. Like, that's certainly a possibility. And I, I would argue, I bet what we see in, in Windows 9, 
application virtualization is yes, what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. it's going to get thinner and thinner. It's You're still going to be hosting, or it's going to look to the app like it's running in a different OS than it actually is running. Re- and this is done today. I mean, if you've seen Parallels for the Mac, yeah. you know you can run a Windows app in a window right next to a Mac app in a right. window on the same machine. So, I mean, application virtualization is there. It just hasn't caught up in Windows yet. Yeah, I mean, we are talking about a code base that hasn't been worked on 15 years. Right. Uh, and the and the problem is is his belief that they just have to hit the open source button and everything will be fine. Yeah, and that's simply not true. Mm. You know, open source is a, a complex set of licenses. In fact, when you have an open source project and it needs to change license for whatever reason, it's a huge deal. Well, it turns out every piece of software has licenses, including right. Visual Basic. Right. In order to change the license, which is what you're talking about when you talk about open sourcing it, you have to make sure you know where every line of code came from. Yep. And we know, because there's six versions of VB, different people worked on VB over a long period of time. Right. And I wouldn't even know if the source code repository was intact for VB at this point. Hmm. Do you have any 15-year-old code bases that you know you can still recompile? Yeah, good point. Mm-hmm. That's really a tough thing to consider. Uh, and same issue with the, and, I mean, at least Steve's pretty straight up on, I don't know who would maintain this, because that's the whole thing is you don't just dump code into the open source repository. It has to have a life. It has to be cared for. And that's not a trivial thing. Right. Same with going to 64-bit. That means every third-party control needs to be upgraded too. Like, that's, it's it's an incredibly large amount of work. I just don't see it's millions of dollars in my mind Hmm. it would take millions of dollars from microsoft to employ the people necessary to track down everything that needed to be known about the source and when they hit source they cannot identify rewrite it so Hmm. that they can clarify the license like that's what it would take to actually make this happen i just can't imagine it ever happening it's impossible yeah that's a good point and uh again it's it's still speculation right i mean we we don't really know but what the what the biggest reason is but certainly there are a few obvious ones that stick out yeah that's one of them and, and just knowing a code base that old and what it would take to actually get the license in order it, i think it's not feasible yeah um, and so there's going to have to be other approaches to keep that old code alive and you hit i think on the best one it's going to be a kind of application virtualization that encapsulates it so it doesn't have to evolve into the new version and we forget i mean vb6 you can still use the product yep. right it's not that it, it can't be used it's just that it requires compatibility settings right you know, and and uh it needs to run in a certain way well in the early versions of win8 broke so much stuff yeah it's been fixed subsequently, but you know right. that's sort of reality. But you know the future of Windows is going to be running compatibility layers. Exactly, exactly. So, that's Steve, uh, you know, thanks for your email. You've obviously stimulated a lot of conversation. I did that uh, Microsoft Virtual Academy series about open source, the set of videos which I'll send a link to, and uh, I even brought it up there as well. And then we talked about it with Phil, and now we're talking about it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to crush anybody's dreams, but I just. I've learned enough about the way open source works today, uh, talking to lawyers and such to realize I know that Microsoft, if they even looked at this a little bit, is aware of how costly that request is. And it just, I can't imagine it's ever going to happen. But I'll try and compensate with a .NET Rocks mug. So I'm sending you out a .NET <laughs> Rocks mug. And if you'd like one, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. And that brings us to our guest. Uh, He's back again. 
Morton Runga has been a programmer since 1988 and a meta-programmer since 1990 and has worked for small startups and larger organizations as well, such as Visma or Microsoft. And uh, a while ago in T4, Morton found his calling and was consistently trying to spread the word to family, friends, colleagues, and strangers who just said hello. These days he's working in Ericsson and doing some F-sharp and some other things that he's going to talk about. Welcome back, Morton. Thank you. It's nice being here again. Nice. Uh, been too long, I think. It has been too long. <laughs> There's a so yeah. I, I guess we were talking about T4 last time you were here, so that gives you yep. an idea of how long ago that was. And uh, now you're doing a lot of F sharp stuff. As you mentioned, I work at Ericsson these days, and uh, Ericsson do don't do any .NET development at all. So I think I compensated that a little bit to do F sharp in the evenings. Yeah, uh, to get some .dotnet love in my life. Right, and and of course, you know, Ericsson is the birthplace of Erlang, so yep. you know that it's functional all the way. <laughs> yeah, but I haven't really been involved in Erlang yet, but I, I'm hoping for that because uh, yeah, there there is still development being done with that. So you've been doing C sharp since 2002, and you, would you venture to say that F sharp is now your favorite language? Yeah, I would say so. Uh, I really, I, I am. A, I would say I'm a C sharp developer, but F sharp is my favorite language. If that makes sense, uh, I guess the idea is that I, I'm 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 better C sharp developer than F sharp developer. But I, these days, my go to language when I start a new console application, it's F sharp. And can you make F sharp taste like C sharp? I mean, can you do all the things that C sharp can do in F sharp? Is there anything missing these days? There are minor things missing, uh, but the, the community, like we're going to talk about open source, are working on it. One of the things is like fixed on local variables, but they are kind of small, uh, marginal things. Like, and yeah. I believe you can't do static public fields, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. So, in general, I think F# -sharp allows you to do ev almost everything you can do in C# -sharp, and, in my opinion, more as well. Now you've done some Java as well. So, um, Java and C# -sharp, how's your What's the relationship there in your mind? Yeah, so I'm not really a Java, uh, I mean, pro at all. But I, I really find that you can really taste the similarities between Java and C Sharp. Sure, there are a lot of differences. And, you know, you can point to certain specifics. But if you come from C Sharp world and work with Java, I find the biggest challenge is, is getting to know the libraries and, mm. you know, where I'm, I'm looking for a thread class. Where is it? Right. But the, the language itself are, to be honest, quite similar. Very similar. Uh, not so with F Sharp. Uh, it's a little bit, you know, that it's a much bigger step actually. Right. And and F Sharp, I mean, it's the whole functional thinking problem, right? Like this is just you have to think a different way to really use this language. I think you don't have to do it because you can program object oriented in F Sharp. So F Sharp is a kind of multi paradigm language. Okay. But, but in order to, I think, to harness the power of F Sharp and really, you know getting to the good parts of it, you should really adopt functional, lang functional uh, approaches where it makes sense, right? But F-sharp support classes and objects and these kind of things, just a C-sharp. But to get to the best parts, I really think uh, you, you, you benefit from thinking functional. Now, um, uh, some things about F-sharp we may or may not have discussed over the years is that ordering is important. The, the order in which you declare your uh, yep. your variables or the order in which lines of code appear, of course. What uh, what do you mean by ordering? Yeah, so that's uh, I maybe can be one of the biggest surprises for a C-sharp developer coming to F-sharp, that, that 
if you have two functions a and b and you b function wants to use a you have to make sure that a is declared before in the file from from top to down otherwise you can't use it and even if you if you put this in two different files you have to make sure that a is in the file that is before the the file where that holds function b now when you say in the file that is before do you mean like the name of the file has to alphabetically be in order no 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 but uh, uh, if you work with uh, f sharp in uh, visual studio for instance uh, if you right click a file in visual in in visual studio you find that you have functions like move file up move file down oh, I which see. are not available in c sharp and you think why is that but that's the reason all right you have so, to. so the ordering of files and the ordering of functions is very important Super important. And it has to do with type inference, but I'm not really a F-Shop pro, so I can't really answer it, but it has to do with the way that F-Shop is a much more powerful type inference than C-Shop. Okay. And we also know that F-Sharp variables are immutable by default, so you don't yep. just change something, you make a copy of it. Yeah, if you need to change something, you typically make a copy of it, like right. uh, rec- record classes and all these kind of you know, uh, F-Shop types by default are, like you say, immutable. Right. And we, we have a few immutable classes in, in uh, .NET Framework. A string is immutable, for example. Yeah. When, you, when you say, you know, string equals string plus whatever, you're making a copy. That's correct. Yeah. You may and not... also from uh, Microsoft these days, the, what's called uh, the immutable collections. Hmm. Uh, I think it's available. I don't, I don't remember. Yeah, it's interesting to see how the languages are playing off each other. You know, C-sharp may have come first. And F-sharp, clearly to make it into Studio, they added a bunch of more C-sharp-like capabilities, became a lot more object-friendly and things like that. But now it's almost like a duel between them. The C-sharp team comes up with something cool. The F-sharp team has some way to implement it. The F-sharp team has something cool. C-sharp team implements it. I remember talking to Don Syme, uh, Morton. Uh, Richard and I talked to Don Syme in Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts, not Cambridge, England. And, um, you know, he was talking about type providers. And we were like, oh, this is great. And I asked him, so is this coming to C-sharp anytime soon? And he smiled ear to ear and shook his head, no. (laughs) He's very, very happy to have that in F-sharp only. (laughs) Yeah, type type providers are interesting. Uh, Basically... Yeah, it, it it is like meta programming, or it's a little bit like you know I'm going to burn bridges here now, but it it has some flavor of T4 to it, and mm. at the same time, not. But it kind of the problems I solved with T4 in C sharp can in many ways be solved with type providers in F sharp. Yeah. So you could argue that in F sharp the T4 is less important, right? Because of type providers. How so? That, I mean, that's an interesting statement from a guy who knows templates better than anybody else I've ever talked to. How does that, I, I'm not sure how, how the two relate to each other even. Well, uh, one thing, if you talk about use cases, right? One thing yeah. I've done a lot uh, with T4 is saying, taking a database schema uh, and build up classes that corresponds to the database schema. Instead of sort of typing in these classes by myself, you know, which I could do, and then use Dapper on it, I say, let's, you know, grab the schema from database and generate the code. So I save myself from typing, and whenever the schema changes, I just get the new schema. But in F-Shop, you know, with F-Shop data and things like that, uh, which is an open source product, which does 
typewriters, you would say, um, grab the schema using a typewriter from a, uh, from a database, and it will generate the codes, uh, the structures and the code in compile time. So in that case, you know, you would say, what is, uh, does T4 give less benefit because right. of the typewriter? Yeah. Typewriters. I I think the typewriters concept is more powerful just from a reentrancy perspective that you're able to come back in, make changes, go again. You know, my my concern with templates was always you do this, you start coding, and you can't go back. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna disagree with uh, you there, but uh, oh? I'm not. <laughs> so you're allowed. You're the guest. I you know set yeah, me but, straight, dude. Yeah, so I'm not exactly sure what I think you were describing is saying. Um, you generate the code, and then you start modifying the generated code. Right. And then you're lost, right? Yeah. But that's not the way I would say you work with T4 or any other tool, is that the generated code artifact is something you don't touch. And in, in the typewriter, you can't touch it because it's, it's you know, compiled. You don't have access to the code, so, so to say. And you should look upon the generated artifact text file in the same way. Right. This will be constantly regenerated. And so, to, and you keep it separate from the custom code you're building, so that yes. you can get back to it. So you modify yeah. the template if you need to modify anything, and then Correctly. regenerate it or the model. Yeah. So cool. that's the way I, I always work with it, and uh, C Sharp is a great language for that because you have partial, which, by the way, F Sharp doesn't have, um, and it probably will be very hard to add to F Sharp as well, if even if you wanted it. Right. Yeah, I can, Rich. I can see that point in technologies where you don't have access to the template. You know, like ASP.NET. You know, is a good example of that, yeah. right? You know, and we we had the the ASP.NET the designers issue where you know it it's generating code for you from something, you know, from and that you from a designer perhaps, and uh, you know the differences between the designer and you know when you modify the code, does it go back into the designer? Mm. But uh, there, you don't have control of either, really. No. Yeah. You don't have control of the template. You control. Right. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah. So I'm still, you know, uh, I'm still at very much a meta programming in terms of T4. I even wrote my own. I'm not going to push for that. But even you know, working Ericsson, I don't have T4 anymore. I even wrote my own T4-like uh, <laughs> generator. And I think it's awesome, to be honest. But uh, that's not why I, <laughs> why I'm here to talk about that. Yeah. So uh, how do you get started with F-Sharp? Yeah, so the thing I want to talk about today, right, is sort of, you know, I've been sort of more and more interested in sort of, you know, contributing to F-Sharp um, because I like it and I thought it would be an interesting thing to get involved with. You know, F-Sharp is open source. You can find it on CodePlex. It's, you know, under the Apache license 2.0, so it's very permissive. Um, and uh, so I started looking into that uh, during this summer, and I've been sort of going into more and more into that. And I want to, if you don't mind, I want to talk a little bit about you know what pe people could you know if you want if you are a developer, they want to be involved with op developing in F Sharp uh, project. What you need to do? Okay. Uh, so I guess the first thing you have to ask yourself if if you're interested in sort of you know contributing to F Sharp is like, can you sign the contribution license agreement. This is boring stuff, but that is really <laughs> an important step, right? Because if you can't sign it, uh, you ca uh, it can't, your uh, pull request can't be merged. Now, how come you couldn't sign a, a, a CLA? It's if your employer, uh, which owns 
can can have some claim on the code you do even on your free time if they disagree with that you might not be able to sign it yeah that seems like an in, you know because there are strict rules about if you're employed by someone and that you write code for they own that code but as soon as you go home isn't that your time i'm not a i'm not a lawyer guy i, I can't right. really answer that but uh, it's this if you check the cla from uh uh for F sharp, it includes that you have the employer you have, you have to sign it unless you're self employed or without job. Right. But they, so it sp- explicitly says you've got, you have shown this to your employer. Yeah. And I think for most cases, it's like, yeah, you, if you're, most people are not developing competing technology with F sharp, right? Right. Uh, if you were working perhaps on a functional language, uh, which, and you Im- took these smart algorithms, you, do during daytime and move into F-Sharp compiler, which then competes with your language, I think that employer would object to that. Right. But, but with Ericsson uh, not working, you know, with F-Sharp compilers, mm-hmm. and uh, it's much more, you know, dissimilar words. Although I think with a company as big as Ericsson, it must have been a challenge to get someone with enough legal knowledge to actually agree to sign it. Uh, F-Sharp is a big contributor to open source, actually. Uh, No, no, not F-Sharp. Sorry, I said the wrong thing. Ericsson is a big contributor to open source. Like, for instance, Eclipse is a huge contributor to that. And um, I think Ericsson as well does some some contributions to Linux. So it's it's not something which is unheard of in the Ericsson organization. Right. So there are people inside that understand the whole thing about open source and would know what it would mean for you to come at them with a CLA. I would say of all companies I've worked with, I think Ericsson has the best understanding of uh, licenses and open sources. That's awesome. So, um, so, yeah. um, so no problem. A, no problem. Wow. It, you have to have a dialogue with your boss and things like yeah. that. That's, that's what you need to do. Well, and it, again, it's not, it's not your time. It's for your knowledge. Now you're dealing with the NDA issue. Yeah. Yeah. Like if Ericsson and other companies don't want to compete with the idea they helped funding, you know, Right. You take ideas and put into the competing product. Like if I was working on a Windows s- server team and I took ideas from there and put into Linux kernel, yeah, I would object if I was, you know, the manager of that guy. Yeah, no, it, 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 that's a really interesting line because just because you're not on work hours doesn't mean you forgot everything you learned no. at work and no. you apply that knowledge into an open source project. There could be a problem there. Yeah. So, so the CLA is super important and, you mm-hmm. know, boring stuff. But uh, so I just want to mention it and, you know, rip through that. Um, <laughs> well, I think it starts with just knowing that there, whether, what's the CLA for this particular project? Because I think they change from project to project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's true, too. I think Microsoft Open Source Projects might have a common CLA, but I'm not really an expert okay. uh, on that one. So, uh, but it's, it's, it's important, right? And it has to be taken seriously because, I mean, what otherwise what could happen is you put in a lot of effort for a great PR and then they're going to hit the button and you know you come back and say can't sign the CLA and they say oh too bad we can't use your code no mm. yeah so this is one of those things to do it in the do it in the beginning or it's going to bite you later right yeah if you yeah if you don't mind wasting work i do this this because it's fun so you know worst case scenario i will yeah <laughs> so yeah so i think you know um one thing that also sort of I think is great with F-Shop and F-Shop communities, I find the F-Shop community friendly uh, and, uh, you know, they promote experiment, experimenting with F-Shop language and F-Shop um, uh, 
uh, sort of the core library. Uh, that doesn't mean that you know your PRs, which include sexy and cool new stuff, will get accepted just like that. But you won't get yelled at, you know. Uh, right. I couldn't. I couldn't work in that. That's kind of open source software. You'd be calling an idiot just because you uh, have an idea, which you ha- may you have might, might have not considered, it, you know, very well. But you know, and I, I had some idea for the F Shop community that didn't really play out that well. Uh, but uh, nobody yelled at me and I said, "Well, you know, interesting, but maybe not F Shop." Interesting, because I guess that's what it comes down to. If you're going to make a contribution to F Sharp, you have to have an idea of something that isn't already in F Sharp, and that's yep. a pretty tricky way to think. Mm. Now, in F Sharp, it's not too bad actually. If you if you're looking for ideas, there's something called the I forgot the name, but it's the F Sharp language um, ideas. It's a specific URLs. Perhaps you can put it on the uh, on, uh, related to this. Um, Podcast, but oh sure, you can you can find ideas there for things that are uh, approved by sort of F Sharp community and F Sharp maintainers in principle, but they haven't done it and they're looking for contributors. And it can be things like simple things like uh, add string dot filter, uh, right. just a function, or it can be complex things like you know uh, implementing fixed, uh, like I mentioned before. That's probably a pretty interesting feature, so so to say. Yeah, I've been looking at the uh, the F Sharp site on Coplex right now, and there's a priorities list. So I guess this is the things yep. that they think are important and yep. may or may not have resources for. Yeah, that's a very good link as well. You know, to check, yeah. really check it out. So that can give you an idea of what you can look at. Um, personally, I had some ideas on things I wanted to do. Right, so I, I started with them and had this kind of hubris, you know, thinking this is what I want to do, and if people don't like it, well, never mind them. Yeah. So. Uh, so and working with the source code, I think it could be you know getting started right. So you uh, you, see, you clone from Visual Source uh, from Visual F Sharp Copescom. This is you know using Git. You fork it, you clone it, and I use Visual Studio Express. Uh, um, you might use other ways to do it, but uh, to edit the code. But I find that Visual Studio Express works well. Um, IntelliSense really helps in the in the F Sharp project because. When you don't know the compiler that well, and because F# allows you to sort of omit um, parameter types, it can sometimes be tricky to realize that the parameter m is a range type if it just says m and nothing else. Right. But mm-hmm. IntelliSense really helps with that. So I think uh, in the beginning, uh, it really it's really useful to use Visual Studio, and in general, or maybe a Xamarin or something else. I don't you know I don't know them. And another thing with the sort of the source code is in general, I think they have pretty good naming of things. So you navigate code very frequently using looking, f- uh, finding functions and searching for the functions. Yeah. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Know what time it is? Must be that happy time again. Time to get a fork and dig into a big piece of F sharp pie. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one, dude. Thank you. It's actually time to give away a D-Experience subscription to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who won today, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Lars Gulikson. Congratulations, Lars. 
Yeah. Golf clap for you. Golf clap for Lars. And Lars won the D Experience subscription, a big pile of awesome from DevExpress. If you don't know what we're talking about here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show, we give away great sponsor stuff. And every December, we give away $5,000 U.S. currency worth of technology to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And uh, we like to ask our guests, Morton, if you had $5,000 U.S. right now to spend on technology, what would you buy? Yeah, I've been thinking a little bit about that, and I think I would go for a four, really good 4K screen. And how many, uh, how, I don't know there 30, are any 30, really good 4K screens yet. But they, they, I saw yeah, one. I, I saw one at Best Buy. Or maybe it was a 4K TV. I guess it's the same, isn't it? Not necessarily. Oh, yeah, you're right. I guess you're right. Yeah. Martin, which ones have you seen? Um, I checked uh, a site otherwise. I forgot the name of it, to be honest. Um, uh, but I remember the price tag, which was uh, $20,000. So I guess <laughs> I have to wait. Okay. I mean, it got to be good with that price tag. You could so. start a layaway plan. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, twenty grand. That's got to be you know something in the eighty inch class. Uh, it wasn't that big, but uh, it was 30 t- 36 inches. So uh, oh, only thirty six inches. Wow. You want to program on that? Yeah, I guess sure. you'd be able to read it. Was like it, you could use it full resolution. Was it twenty thousand kroner? No, 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 no. One hundred forty thousand krones. Oh my gosh! Wow. But the thing is, I I use a thirty inch screen to program, on, and I I use big fonts. You know, ah. I zoom my fonts. So I just love the idea to sit back and relax and look at the code mm. very comfortably yeah. from way off. I like that. And yeah, you don't... I, li- I whole like the whole idea of working on a 30-inch screen, just having that big window. It's just you'd want higher resolution. Yeah, give me something in the you know 200 DPI range on a 30-inch, mm. and you can get a lot of information on the screen. Well, I think he likes yeah. to sit a little further away than you do, Richard. I mean, probably, I, it might be true. Probably better for his eyes, actually. But... Uh, yeah, I'm I'm with you, Richard. I like sitting up close. That's because we're old and blind. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's really the reason I also get run big fonts. My eyesight's <laughs> I like icons really. the size of my head. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, before the break there, Martin, we were talking about what it took to actually get c- sort of control of the code base. So you've you've you got Studio Express, you've gotten onto the F sharp Coplex site, you forked the code. Do you have to get right to you build your own version of F sharp? Yep, that's what you do. And, and then you, you can start adding code to it. I just find that chilling almost to add <laughs> code to a language. Yeah, I mean, in, and also considering that F sharp is written in F sharp, you get this kind of nice recursive, uh, you know, how the heck does this work? So you start with the you start with Visual Studio's version of F sharp. You compile a new version of F-sharp, and wh- what, do you load that back into Studio to compile the next version of F-sharp? Yeah, so be- before we go into these very interesting questions, I, I just want to mention uh, another thing, which, you know, in order to get to this point that you can debug your code, because I think that's, you know, it, it, it's a little bit uh, rocky, that road. So I'm just going through this very quickly. Go so ahead. The, the dev guide in F- official F-sharp folder you should really check that out because that gives you instruction on how to build uh, the proto comp- the proto compiler, which then is used to build the rest of the compiler and to build the core libraries. And another thing to note is that it, this is designed to work with Visual Studio um, 
build console. I don't, I don't remember the exact name of that. Mm-hmm. So I run it in administrator mode. There's a special, you know, console uh, you get with Visual Studio, which have paths set up. So you need to run these commands from that console. And then when you're done with that, you actually have your new F-Shop compiler or your new F-Shop interactive. And using very often the F-Shop interactive, that's the way F-Shop developer works, you can then try your new code, right? Typing, if you implement a new syntax, or you're adding new functions to it, you, that's available to you there in the F-Shop interactive. And I find that the, the compiler, I was a little bit, you know, in the beginning thinking, how the hell do you debug, you know, this thing uh, in a compiler? But to be honest, this is quite easy. Either you spawn the F-Sharp Interactive from Visual Studio and just your breakpoints get hit at the point where you're interested, or you write a test program and you spawn the F-Sharp compiler uh, with the test program's input parameter and you just uh, sit there uh, and analyze the breakpoints like normal. So it's actually surprisingly easy, uh, for me at least, to, to debug the compiler. And I also find, uh, it was pointed out, that if you're working with changing uh, the language, sometimes you will affect the IL code that is generated. So it's really useful to use a decompiler to sort of analyze, you know, does my IL code look, look correct? Like So ELDASP, which is shipped, is good for that. I use ILSPY because then I can check if the code uh, in C-sharp matches the semantics I'm after. But really, when you really need to get down to it, uh, IL, IL code tells the truth. So, but Mm-hmm. Once that's done, you're ready to get debugging, and then you're really ready to start adding code. Yeah, this is freaky to me, you know, to start making modifications into a compiler. Like, it, you have to learn enough about compilers and the whole yeah. process to actually understand what's going on. Yeah, I, I think for me, it's made it a little bit easier because um, I work a lot with parsing. Uh, that's the hobby I have. When I'm a little bit stressed out of work, I come home and write a parser. That's the way uh, I like so to So that's relax. fun for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're and, strange, oh, Doc Martin. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. People say that. <laughs> so, and also another thing which I enjoy doing a lot in C-Shop is working with these system link expression trees Yeah. Uh, to sort of generate, generate code on the fly, you know, to sort of do things faster than if, yeah, things like that, you know. That's metaprogram in runtime. I like metaprogramming. So, that really helps with the F-Shop compiler as well, because really what the F-Shop com- compiler does, in my opinion, and no, I'm, th- I'm talking like an engineer, not a computer scientist here, like you take in a text file, which is sort of, you know, in a certain structure, you convert it in some kind of, you know, expression tree that describes this text file. And then in several steps, the compiler then transforms this exp- uh, expression tree into the final expression tree, which is then is uh, converted into IL code. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a three-step process, like parse, right. uh, manipulating expression trees, and then generating IL code. Uh, so that's really you know what it's all about. And if you done a little bit of that, you know, done some parsing, done some uh, some expression tree it's really it really helps. But I would say it doesn't stop anyone because, as I want to mention, what you want to do in F-Shop compiler uh, when modifying F-Shop, you typically have two workflows. I would say one is changing the F-Shop core library. And one mm-hmm. is modifying the language. And chaining an F-sharp core library, that's just normal code. You, you add a new function like string filter. Right. It's not, nothing special with that, except it's F-sharp, right, if you're not used to F-sharp. Mm-hmm. And then you write a test case in end unit with that. It's still, you know, we do it all the time uh, with normal code. So 
you know, making contributions to F-sharp by adding new functions or modifying functions or fixing bugs, that's, that's nothing special, really. Uh, it's, it's, it's classic programming. Yeah. It's the adding new stuff that's interesting. Add, yeah, that's, re- that's, really, uh, that's really where I, yeah. you know, and that's also much more controversial, so you might have to be able to, <laughs> to, uh, to uh, uh, take a no. Uh, the first, the first thing I added was a new operator uh, to the language, which I mm-hmm. thought useful. Uh, which is uh, for the technical details, it's low precedence and right associative. It's a backwards pipe operator, and I find uh, I want to have that, but um, it really, it didn't really fly with the community. Mm, a backwards pipe operator. Yeah. Okay. So F- yeah, you gotta F-shop, explain that one. <laughs> yeah. So F Sharp has uh, the. And F-sharp and, you know, uh, many functional languages have this concept of piping. And it really is like, in many ways, like link in, uh, in C-sharp. Yeah. Or it's like piping in a, in a PowerShell. Mm. It's like you do a small piece of work in one command and then you pipe the results to the next one. That's a forward pipe. Yeah. And, and in F-sharp, that is the bar greater than sign. I don't remember. Yeah. Um, and that's a forward piping. But there's also a backwards pipe operator in F-sharp, which is the other way around. So you can pipe it. Instead of going left to right, you can go uh, right to left. And that's useful for certain things. Now, uh, not- how, I'm, I'm trying to figure out, wrap my brain around when I would do that. Because well, it, like, it sounds like you're messing with the time-space continuum here. Uh, yeah, but it, it's really it's like in the ordering of... Uh, it, it's, it doesn't change the way things are executed. It's just in... Um, the, the order you write your code. And so it's sort of you, like a code pointer, like a loop um, thing. When you're done with this, go. it's like a go-to, maybe? Uh, not, it, it is really like, if you take the um, forward pipe operator, and you yeah. know that, you have the reverse pipe operator, you just switch the sides of the argument. But in certain cases, this is important, uh, in my opinion. But the problem with this uh, backwards pipe operator in uh, uh, F-sharp, once again, I might uh, make enemies now, is that it's uh, left associative and uh, has the same precedence, and yeah. this is important, as uh, the backwards, uh, the forward pipe operator. Because the backwards pipe operator should really be right associative, in my opinion. So the parentheses are added on the right side first instead mm. of the left side first. I see. I could see and, how that could be confusing, though, for, for people. Well, many people are using... Uh, right associative uh, operators. We're not. We're not considering. If you consider the assignment, op- uh, the assignment uh, operator yeah. in C sharp, yeah. when you x e x equals y equals z, mm. that's right associative. If you put the parentheses on the left side first, it doesn't make any sense. It's just when it does it on the right side. So certain operators are much more natural if you're having the right precedence. And in I my see. opinion, the le- the current backwards pipe operator has the wrong. Uh, associativeness. Once again, I might make, make enemies now. So, so I wanted to fix that. So that's my hubris, right? I got uh, you. But it didn't really fly. But I learned a lot from that. There are a couple of um, file types that we should probably talk about in F Sharp. Like uh, you have your .fs, which is pretty pretty obvious. But what's a fsy and an fsl? What are those yeah. files? So. So shading normal code, right? Then you really are in .fs file, which is normal F-sharp files. And also a F-sharp developer, you use the FSX files, which is our F-sharp scripting files. But if you want to sort of change the language, which, to be honest, I enjoy doing, um, then you want to get into something which is called a lexer and a parser. 
Uh, and Elixir, what that does is that it analyzes the text stream and builds up tokens from it, like a token for uh, uh, for the backwards pipe operator. You can have a certain token for that, and you, you replace these text text uh, these text streams with a list of tokens, and then together that you use the parser to sort of extract the syntax, which is x equals y. That's a certain syntax. FSL is the Lexer file in uh, F sharp as a special syntax, and FSE is the parser file, and they're closely related. If, you, if you're interested in adding a new token, a new operator, that's where we, would you, where you want to go. Okay. And do those, do those files have their own language format, or are they also just F sharp? It, it is kind of a mix. It's a certain, it's inspired, this is classic parsing things, it's inspired yeah. by Jack and Lex, you probably heard about them. Right. Uh, but instead of using C space, you use F sharp. So you inject F sharp code in, into this lexing and, par- and parsing code. Neat. But but uh, other things can be like another thing I invested a lot of time with, and that I think it has much more to do with uh, that is much more likely to be merged um, is sort of do, doing optimization of the generated code. And then you would typically mm-hmm. uh, like for instance, I noticed that the for expression in, in F sharp. For strings and for immutable lists, in my opinion, generated less efficient code than it needed to do. So then I was che- then you you go into optimizing F sharp, and that's called opt.fs. Mm-hmm. And if you want to add more type checking and uh, smart things like that, you would go probably into the T seed of fs and things like that. Okay. But I find one way is like how the hell do you find? No, maybe I swear as well. That's okay. <laughs> I don't know what the <laughs> rules are there. Sorry. How do I find? where I should modify my code. Like, I have an idea. I want to do something, right? Like, uh, how do I find the correct place to do it? And then I really find that error messages is very helpful. Because what I do then is I type the syntax like I want it to work in F-sharp. And I run it through the compiler, and the compiler says, this doesn't work, I get an error message. Mm. And then I search for the code that generated the error message. Yeah. And then I probably it's in the kind of the correct place yep. to sort of you know to do the additions. So error messages actually are very helpful to sort of navigate the code. Isn't that cool? This is this is what I wanted. To, this is how I want it to work. And yeah. then wherever it blows up, that's the thing I got to change to make it work. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of, it's kind of like that. And uh, and obviously sometimes seriously it empirical work at all. way to 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 develop new things. Yeah. So so I think. That's where we want to start looking first. Is kind of lexer the parser and the tease and optimize it depending on what you want to do. But mm. error messages, great help. So it, I mean, it's an iterative process then to write. I mean, this is about trying to understand the whole of a compiler eventually. Mm. Yeah. So I don't understand the F# compiler in fully. I will not pretend to do that. I, right, I don't know that anybody does. Don Simon does. Don Simon, Kevin Ransom, and those guys. Uh, uh-huh. Maybe. But uh, I'm sure there are some dark corners for them as well, where they are not as comfortable as other places. Um, but and I'm not really an F sharp expert, right? I often consult the sort of you know the reference manual. But it is possible, you know, using your general software engineering skills to sort of you know decompile or not decompile, but you know deconstruct this compiler and understand how it works and do the things you want to do. So it's it's I mean. I didn't do anything special, really. I just sat down a couple of days and looked at the code. Wow, I mean, that's it's, it's very cool. 
And and I got I didn't want to pull this back a little bit, but uh, with your reverse piping operator, did you talk about this first or did you code it first? Like I coded it first because that's what I wanted to do. But later on, I I've been pointed into sort of uh, more uh, better ways to do it. Like you go for FSLang, you know, and you check these things and see if there are you know ideas there that right. are good. So I didn't know about that. So I just picked an idea I had in my head and did it. And then mm. and it, yeah, then you got into that conversation of is this where we want to go? Is this something we actually need? Yeah. Like it's is it is there is it a goal for you personally, Morton, to actually have a piece of code in the production F sharp product? Uh I mean I wouldn't mind it, but if yeah. I, I never end up with it, I will not be terribly disappointed. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's not a huge... I mean, I've talked to folks who's like, before I die, I want to contribute to the Linux kernel. Right. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. I want Linus to have approved a piece of my code. And said, I'm awesome. You yeah, know, right. You're the best <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wouldn't mind it, of course, but knowing Linux, uh, Linus, I probably would not call me awesome. So... Uh, <laughs> you know what just uh, occurs... He's a big grumpy. What occurs, yeah, yeah, yeah. what occurs to me is that we, when we interview guys like Don Syme, that we, we actually ask them about ideas and things rather than talking about, you know, what the regular press does when they interview celebrities, which is, can you imagine if we gave him this treatment? So, Don, in the original kernel in line 4,325, you use the this operator where you should have used that operator and you know what exactly did you mean by that line of code go you know (laughs) it's like completely take it out of context you know the difference is he'd probably be able to answer it (laughs) (laughs) i'm sure who knows but i do like the idea that they've literally got a list and i just saw don sign tweet about this list of features that they want to get into f sharp for that have nobody working on them yet yeah cool so if your actual motivation was to just be part of the F-sharp code base, they're literally outlining it for you. Yep. I like the fixed uh, keyboard thing for local variables. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit tempted, uh, but uh, I have a, uh, I have, I'm going to go to Oslo next week and talk about async await, so I don't think I have time. Uh, there you go. It, was it, it, were, did you suggest um, a support of an automatic iDisposable implementation? Oh, yeah. That's also another one of my ideas, uh, which were, these are these are ambitious ideas. So, um, because that's one thing I really missed in C sharp and uh, F sharp as well. So that's actually one, was one of my first ideas that we have the using keyword right in C sharp. Mm-hmm. We know what that does, and in F sharp is called use. That means we automatically dispose our objects when mm-hmm. we're going out of scope. But if I add a disposable member as a field to my class. I have to Im- remember to implement iDispose, mm-hmm. iDisposable, and the dispose method. And I have to remember to do things in a certain order and in a correct way and sh- ca- catching exceptions and things like that. So I was thinking, why can't I use the use keyword on a member in F-sharp and in order to go- get uh, iDisposable for free? Mm-hmm. And, and uh, so that was one of my more ambitious PRs. Yeah, so if you just have a use uh, block, then whatever you're, it's going to modify that object. It's going to extend that object yes. or that function yes. to include yes. an implementation correct. of iDisposable. And that's exactly correct, because the basic idea is there that because the keyword use was already there, I didn't have to do it. I only had to allow it on a, on a member, mm. on a class member. And whenever I discovered this member, I injected in the F-Sharp compiler, I injected the iDisposable interface and I generated it, uh, the expression tree in order to dispose my members. So 
that's basically what I did. But um, how does it know what it needs to dispose? Like you have to walk and look at any what you know. Um, it's a little bit like reflection. It's, it's, yeah, you, it's, yeah, it's, exactly. You have something which is called a Tycon, the Tycon object, which I think stands for type container, but I'm I could be wrong. Hmm. Um, and that contains things like uh, methods and um, uh, and interfaces. But once again, you know, uh, I cheated here, uh, like I did with error messages, is that I knew that F Sharp is actually generating code already because F Sharp one thing it does is that it generates um, a compare to and equals these methods. It generates these automatically for you. Mm-hmm. So I knew F-Sharp already did this somehow, and so I just found that code that did that and extended that with uh, my iDisposable implementation. So that would, that would mean that if you had this, you could write classes that had um, unmanaged resources or other disposable things and never have to worry about them being disposed. But you have uh, to make sure uh, that uh, your uh, caller, yeah. So, so my feature, which I worked on, which is just an example, is that I say that in, I would say ninety percent of the cases, most people that implement i disposable, at least in my experience, don't have un- unmanaged resources. Yeah, they but have what other we disposable. Do have, managed, we have yeah. connection strings. No, not con- but database connections. We have transactions. These kind of things they have to be disposed if I keep them as a member. So you have so, managed managed resources that are also i disposable. Yes. Yeah. So my feature only handled that case and yeah. said if you need to do unmanaged resources, implement i disposable. You know. Uh, yourself and a, and a, and a destructor. So it's interesting. It's interesting, Morton, that uh, VisualBasic.net, when you imp- when you say you know implements iDisposable, writes the implementation for you mm. in your yep. class, and so that if you if you're not you know as long as you're not using Notepad or something to write your VB code in, you're going to get all that stuff for free. But that's a different approach than what you're talking about. You're saying yes. I never even have to say iDisposable. Because the, the problem is the calls it, yeah. The Weeby way is it implements that code for you for free, but what happens when I add a new member? Right. Yeah. Then you have to remember to add, add it. What yeah. happens? And you if never I wrote that code work? in the first place, so you may not know how to do it. Yeah. yeah. So so with this augmentation, as it's called in F sharp, I when when the code is compiled, we I analyze the class and generate the disposable all the time. It will always stay in sync. And you it know, will not clutter the code. Uh, you know it's a i think that's a very cool approach and and if you think about it could be taken a little to a further extreme and just mm. and just said why would i even have to use use at all if the compiler might want to detect if i have disposable yeah. objects and automatically do that for me but there's a reason you might well you have use. to use yeah you have to use use you have to define the scope you're right because you can as you understand you yes. can get sometimes you don't control the lifetime of the object. That's right. And you do need to control it. Yeah. So if you like that idea, you can vote for it on FSLang, FSLang uh, page. <laughs> Maybe I can get the, it accepted. Yeah. I like it. Is that, and that's part of this. You've had the conversation first about these ideas, and then they eventually get sort of formed up enough that they can become a voting list for priority? Yeah, that's would be the way to do it, I guess. Uh, but I, I So what I did first was I uh, added this on FSLang, um, to, as a as a as an idea, and then like uh, 15 minutes later, because I did it because I uh, I submitted a PR, so right. that, that might not be the you know complete right to do way to do it. But if I added a couple of days in between, you know, to get the f- correct feedback, that would be more you know by the book, I guess. 
But once again, what I really like about F-Sharp community is that they they don't shoot down ideas like this, mm, even right. they don't agree well, all the time. Because clearly they have a plan, but they're willing to be influenced by others who want to contribute. Yeah. I, I, I find this balancing act really interesting between write the code to show that you're passionate versus mm. have the conversation of what you want mm. to make sure you're in line with the plan. But lots of people can complain about stuff, but those who actually write code should have more power. Yeah. And it's it can be that if I explain this in in Efeslang, uh, where this uh, this community, I might not have done a good job, and they might th- or they, the implement might think this is just way too hard. But perhaps I find a way to do it, which is more simple than I thought, you know. And then they could say, well, it wasn't as bad as we thought this was. Maybe we can accept it. Sometimes you get a little bit right. locked. When I worked in teams, right? Is I like to get new people into a team because when you work for a long time with software, you start thinking, we can't do this, we can't do this. It's too complicated uh, because we're stuck. But sometimes when a new guy or girl come in and they say, this can't be that hard, and you realize, no, it's, it's actually not that hard. It Why maybe it comes we... at it from a different angle, but it just doesn't have the baggage of having been there for so long. Yeah, and you're scared of all the regressions errors, and you're thinking, oh, we can't do this. And someone says, oh, we can do it. And they write. Well, I mean, that's part of the biggest issue, right? When you, especially when you talk about a, a programming language. You can add new features, but you can't change old features because people have dependencies on them. No, that's exactly right. That's also, yeah. So if I'm going to talk more about my case studies, my PR, um, uh, which my case studies are my PRs because I know them, so right. I, I can talk about them. But another thing which I come the most first with, and hopefully when this is, you know, comes out, this uh, podcast, it's merged, right? But I've been optimizing the for expression, right? And... As I said before, I noticed that the for expression was ineffective for strings and for immutable list. And in, in slight detail, what that means is in, if you look at the IL code in C sharp that is generated when you iterate over a string, it basically gets the length of the string and takes an, uh, an integer, increases it from zero to length, and grab the character. That's a very efficient way to do things. But right. in, in, C, in F sharp and uh, in other cases in C sharp as well for for each, they, we, the, the current compiler grabs the enumerator and do move next and get current. So this creates a new object which can put pressure on the garbage collector, but it also is less efficient than if you just go by the indexer. So I said, I can rewrite the, the generated code to just use the indexer. And also, by the way, I'm going to do it for the immutable list because they also iterates over using the enumerator and it's also inefficient. There's a better pattern to do that. Right. But then I thought, I'm going to also optimize the, how you iterate over iList, you know, that interface, and uh, the list class in C-sharp. You, because that's, you can iterate, you can e- either iterate using the enumerator or getting the length and iterate from zero to length. And, and that would be much effic- more efficient. And I did some testing and I reduced overhead by maybe 10 times, you know, compared to enumerator and uh, this other way to do it. And C-sharp, by the way, uses the enumerator there as well. The problem was that then I started thinking about this, and you know that's never a good, ca- good sign. Is that, and then I started trying to you know to wear the compiler hat as I think about it, and you can never break backwards compa- compatibility. Right. And if you really need to break backwards compatibility, you must not break it silently. So you you then break it like in the biggest possible way. So you can't compile the code. Okay, that's maybe acceptable but you can't break it silently. And what I realized was that, let's say, 
because iList is an interface, right? And if one guy out there, and it only has to be one guy, implemented get enumerator and the index and the count differently. So let's say the enumerator returns the list in reverse order for some reason. Yeah. And the, the count and the indexer do it in a normal order. That would mean that when I then do my list optimization that relies on the index and the count, now silently uh, the ordering is changed. And that could be very important. Maybe they pick uh, the most expensive stock to sell to a customer, I don't know, whatever, and it's suddenly pick the cheapest stock all the time and sell it to a customer for, you know, something like that. And, and a company can go bust over these reasons because you screw up. So when we're in the compiler hat, I really wanted this optimization, but I just can't bring myself to it because the risk is just way too high. Mm. With strings, though, and uh, the uh, uh, list in F-sharp, they are both sealed, these classes. So the semantics of these classes are well known. So then we can do optimization because we know they behave in a certain way. Mm -hmm. Morton, this has been a great hour. It's unfortunately come to an end, but I think if I want to take anything away from this, it's don't be afraid of F-sharp. Jump in and and see what you can change. And there are ways to, to implement changes without you know we're being sure that you're not messing things up and uh, you don't have to be Don Sun to, to write code for no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm not a computer scientist guy I'm a computer engineer yeah. Right. Yeah. that's my background well Morton thank you very much it's been great talking to you it was really great coming here thank you alright we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a